It's go time. You're listening live to Third Down Gamble. First Down. Is there a case of chronic wasting disease at Commonwealth Stadium? Are the Rough Riders touchdown phobic? And will the Red Blacks be in the market for a quarterback? These and other pressing questions will be asked, but may not be answered. Welcome everyone to the show. Don Charbon along with Pat Mooney and Heath Graham. And we have a lot to discuss this week. We have a lot to talk about this week. Let's get right at it. Amazing football on the field. Where else do you start but the game that maybe stands out for the way it ended? The uh, Toronto Argonauts hanging on and defeating the Hamilton Tiger Cats in the rematch of the Labor Day game, 17-16. to And of course, the interesting part of that whole equation is the uprights, which we often don't want to talk about in this league, but there it was. Another one was hit. It was quite the finish, and... For those listeners out there, we were kind of texting back and forth watching that game. And sorry for anybody that had the Tiger Cats because I believe I jinxed the kicker. Yes, you did. Um, I did say Toronto would only need one point to win and Beattie's got a pretty strong leg kicking or punting. And that's if this extra point goes through. And seconds after that, off the upright, no good. Toronto runs out the clock and wins. So sorry, Tiger Cat fans, that one's on me. It was jaw-dropping to watch that, you know. Here we are, thinking we're going into overtime and, and uh, unfortunately didn't make it through. That's a tough one because that one stands out. The kicker, I mean, every now and then they do miss, but when it's at the end of the game, boy, that's a tough one to take. And for Hamilton to come back like they did after losing Dane Evans for the game, it was amazing to put together a, a final drive. And it looked like, for all intents and purposes, Toronto was going to get the ball back with a little bit of time left to try to figure out how to get at least a point. And it has to be a crushing defeat for Hamilton to have it end that way after all that hard work to get back in the game. This opportunity comes about when Nick Arbuckle throws what I would say is an ill-advised pass. Don't know if he was trying to complete it or actually get it out of bounds. It's intercepted by Cario Brooks with 2.32 to go with the Toronto 50. That gives David Watford who'd come in for the... Uh, uh, injured Dane Evans. He completes a couple balls and then Sean Thomas Erlington rushes 21 yards, what we think is going to tie the game. And then, of course, Michael Damagala's extra point. And as soon as he kicked it, I turned to my wife and I said, he's missed it. And it went doink. And we've heard doink a lot in Regina the last few times. We have. And, and uh, you know, that was a very ill-advised pass. Uh, you know, we talk about quarterbacks stepping into the pass. There was no stepping in. He was actually backpedaling hard when he just literally threw it up. I think he was trying to throw it out of bounds and he didn't get enough on it. From my perspective, it seemed like what he was trying to do because I don't know what chance you're giving your receiver when you toss one up like that. So I, you know, my, my best hope is that maybe he was trying to get it out of bounds and the, that rush came at him a little bit faster and he kind of didn't get everything on it that he hoped to. But that was definitely an ill-advised and very ill-timed pass. Darian Durant did the same thing in the 2010 Grey Cup where he threw a ball across the field hoping, as he said, to get it out of bounds against the Montreal Alouettes. And Montreal instead 
intercepts the ball and runs out the clock. These passes have got to be made. If you're going to get them out of bounds, make sure they're 10 rows deep. Well, and, and credit to the defense. I mean, they had him backpedaling at that point in time, so he couldn't really step up and get it out of bounds. So, I mean, here we are blaming the quarterback, but let's give credit to the defense. They did a great job of putting pressure on him. You got to blame the quarterback, though. And this is one of the fun things about CFL football as well, is you've got that wider field. So if you're going across the field to try to get it out of bounds, you're sometimes throwing 40, 50 yards to get 10 yards downfield. He has a choice to make in that situation. He's going, as Pat said, backpedaling and sort of falling backwards at that moment. The smart thing to do is just eat the ball. Keep the clock moving. You're not going to score anyway, but eat the ball so that you still have possession. Instead, he, he's going to stop the clock if he throws it out of bounds. And at worst, he's going to have an interception, which obviously happened. Of the negatives that would have come from the play, take the sack. Absolutely. And that's something that, that a novice quarterback does. We have to realize that he hasn't been a starter for a long time in his career, and he still has some learning opportunities. This is certainly one. Next time, I would venture that he will take that sack. To be fair to Arbuckle... 23-37, 236 yards passing. He had uh, one TD pass, two INTs. Dane Evans, before he was knocked out, 19 of 27 for 192, a pick and a touchdown. It wasn't a stellar night for Evans, but you always felt, so long as he was in the game, Hamilton had a chance. Yeah, absolutely. He was not lighting it up by any means, but he was really controlling that offense well, moving the ball downfield. You hate to see a quarterback go out, and he looked very uncomfortable on the sidelines after that injury. Uh, we we see some updates that he's going to miss a couple of weeks. I hope it's not serious in the long run and that he can bounce back from this because uh, they've now lost Brandon Banks to injury as well. So um, it's it's tough slogging for the Ticats. Mazzoli will start against Calgary. That's been already established. Let's give some credit to David Watford. That first series that he came out there after the Evans injury, he looked like he was lost, but he settled down. And that was nice to see for a guy who prior to training camp had basically been cut and was brought back because of need and found his way onto the roster for this game because of injury. He did well enough to maybe merit staying on that roster a while longer. Well, depending on the health of Mazzoli, we may actually see him in the game. Uh, I think he has a lot of tools that he can bring to the team, one of them being a, a strong arm, and, and I think he's a great runner as well. So if he's going into it as a starter, he's going to be much more prepared when you're thrown in the last minutes and, and having to, to bring the team back. He did a very admirable job. What I saw from David Watford was he wasn't afraid to throw the ball. Sometimes you get that backup quarterback in. And, and that first series, he did look a little bit shaky. Uh, you know, sometimes teams tend to shy away when that backup comes in and it's just hand off, hand off, punt the ball away. They needed to get some points and they weren't afraid to let him throw one out there. He protected the ball well, didn't throw any interceptions in those 10 passes. So I think those are important takeaways for him and his confidence. John White had a great day rushing with the Argonauts, 12 carries, 84 yards, averaging seven per. But it seemed to me like the Argonauts went away from that in the second half, and especially as the game got more precarious. Yeah, they did. And we, we haven't seen a lot of teams really focus on the run this year. Uh, we've noticed that from several several games where you have a little bit of success early on, but maybe the scoreboard dictates that you go away from it. Um, you know, you need some quick points. And it's unfortunate because there are some very talented and exciting running backs in the league. And 12 touches isn't a 
big day for a running back by any means. Particularly when you're averaging seven yards a carry. That That's a great offensive play on first down if you can get a seven-yard average. And uh, that, that sets up, shortens the field for the offense. So when you see teams start well and then move away from it, it, it sometimes befuddling. Second game of the weekend. This would be the first of the triple header on Saturday. The Saskatchewan Rough Riders roll into Winnipeg and pretty much roll out of it with nothing as they get clobbered 33 to 9. Lots of stories coming out of this game. Yeah, they held the Rough Riders to field goals in the first half and held them off the scoreboard in the second half. This is something we're getting used to seeing with that Winnipeg defense. Um, they've given up three points in the fourth quarter so far this season, which is a staggering number to look at, and 18 points overall in fourth quarter in in second half. So once they get into that locker room, they're making the adjustments they need to make sure they're staying aggressive and keeping other teams' offenses off the board. It's uh, They're now averaging just over 12 points a game against, which in the CFL is almost unbelievable to have a record of 5-1 and one and not be giving up points hardly at all. They truly are an amazing defense. And they, uh, you know, what I've noticed in watching the game is that they seem to get stronger as the game goes on. Um, you're right, they're, they're not giving up many points, but in each of these last two games, when we get to halftime, the game's still close. In the second half, they just took the game away. And the Saskatchewan Rough Riders offense looked anemic in, in both games, but certainly in, in the second half of both games is really when it was noticeable. Anemic is an interesting word because Saskatchewan did put up almost 400 yards of offense against Winnipeg, 397 to be exact. 21 of 30 for 258 passing. It's interesting because I think what happened to the Rough Riders and what's happened to other teams is that they can move up and down the field until they get to both the 20-yard line and then a switch goes on in that Winnipeg defense and they say, okay, that's fine. You're not going any further. Mike O'Shea had a great post-game interview on CJOB with Bob Irving and he does not like the term bend, don't break when you talk about his defense. He said they play small ball. When this field gets smaller, they tighten up and play tougher. And that seems to be the way they're going about things. You're right. They, you know, we've seen other quarterbacks have success, put up a lot of yards, but they do not give up a lot of points. And if I've got a pick at the one third of the way through the season, outstanding defensive player in this league, I might be leaning towards Adam Bighill. He has been a one man show out there and he's got a lot of pieces around him, but he is playing unbelievably so far. Zach Kolaris and the offense are, are really playing well as well. They're not putting up huge numbers, but they're, they're efficient. They're moving the ball when they need to, and they're getting it in the end zone when they need to. 19 of 23 for 328. Now, one of the 19, Sean McGuire, the fantasy points poacher, threw downfield. The 328, though, in passing, that's a pretty decent day between two quarterbacks for the Blue Bombers. They haven't had those kind of numbers. But when you're making it on 19 throws, that's telling me that the defense is giving up a lot of yards as chunk plays. Yeah, well, the one thing I'll say about Zach Kolaris this year is ball control. He has thrown a couple of interceptions here and there, but he's doing a really good job. His completion rate is is really strong and would be even better. He had a couple of weeks where the receiving core really let him down with some wide open, hit him in the hands drops. So Caleros, he's accurate and he's doing everything he needs to lead that offense. On the other side of the ball, only giving up 12, 13 points a game. You don't have to do a lot. I didn't think I'd be saying this, but but Buck Pierce appears to be an upgrade over Paul Lapolis in terms of the offense. They're distributing the ball well. 
Um, and, and to this point, they're hard to stop. I think defensives really can't key on anyone specifically because you've got Harris, great running back, but each one of those receivers seems to get four or five passes in, in most games, and, and that was the case this time. I mean, their leading receiver is Nick, Nick Dembski with five uh, receptions for 134 yards, one big uh, play, but but the others, he did get a lot of yards after carry as well, and, and, and any given week, any one of these guys can be leading that team. Let's be fair to Lapolis, though. Paul Lapolis, now the coach of the Ottawa Red Blacks, he only had Calaris for one game in the regular season, and they put up about 30-some points when they had him, and then they went into the playoff run right away. Two storylines coming out of this game. First is what is being referred to as the banjo brawl, with 234 left until halftime. Sean McGuire scores a one-yard touchdown, goes to the back of the end zone, celebrates with Andrew Harris, and meanwhile, back in the line, there's scraps going on. Two Rough Riders get tossed, defensive tackle Garrett Marino and halfback A.J. Hendy. Now both of them threw punches. Andrew Harris grabs the grill of Christian Campbell, takes him for probably a three or four yard tug, and then rips the helmet off, and Campbell goes headfirst into the ground. Harris gets a roughing penalty. Does Harris merit supplementary discipline i.e. maybe get tossed for another game for what he did there's a lot of talk about the rule book and what warrants a disqualification and it seems to be a bit of a gray area Uh, a face mask and ripping a helmet off at this point does not seem to be a disqualification for a player and maybe it's time to relook at that Um, i would not be surprised if andrew harris gets a fine for his behavior on the field I don't know at this point if they've got anything that they can warrant a suspension based on the way the rules are written. But if we are concerned about player safety, removing somebody's protective equipment well in the middle of a brawl puts them in a very precarious position. We have seen helmets come off many times in, in games before, particularly in the line play, when it seems to be a deliberate attempt to push someone down and, and you could maybe even argue a deliberate attempt to injure someone when you're grabbing their face mask and twisting their neck. I, I think the league does have to take a look at potentially implementing something within the rule book that would allow them to be able to have a substantial fine or disqualify players in that instance. Uh, in this case, I think they were justified in not doing it at this point, but I think it's something the league has to relook at and adjust. But as Heath pointed out right at the very beginning of this, this is a gray area. And gray areas allow latitude of interpretation. The letter of the law doesn't say that pulling the helmet off is not disqualifiable if it's judged. And they do have the booth to help them if they want. If it's judged that that was an intent to hurt, I think Harris, A, needed to go at the time, but B, needs to go for another game somewhere. Now, remind me, in 2019, did Vernon Adams get a supplemental suspension for ripping a helmet off and swinging it at another player that was against adam big hill if there's a gray area and that didn't cross it i don't think this one does the, the concern with this is with a precedent that, that you're not giving any discipline players realize instead of punching if i grab someone's mask and i drill them to the ground i'm not going to get disqualified i'll get a 15 yard penalty maybe but i'm not going to get disqualified or face supplemental discipline and i think that's a dangerous slope to go down i, I agree 100 and that's something to look at with the players association with the rules committee and really hammer that out and get it black and white now in that brawl there's a couple other players that are lucky to have not been tossed nick dembski and micah johnson both were throwing punches in that pile as well so they could have easily just kept throwing guys out left and right and uh i think 
both teams are a little bit lucky that there weren't more disqualifications in that melee. Uh, it's hard to make those interpretations of the rule book partway through a season and say, hey guys, I know we let you away with this in the past, but now this is what we're, we're going to throw you out for. Um, it's a, an opportunity to educate. Uh, they've got plenty of video reviews that they can show players of what is now acceptable and what's not acceptable and really set that black and white as opposed to the gray area. It's that inconsistency, I think. You know, the gray area, when we step into that, and it, it, it appears that someone maybe crossed the line and yet there doesn't appear to be anything. So this is something that they can work in the next week or two to go through with teams, to run through with their uh, CFLPA and have an understanding of we're in this together to protect player safety, so here's the rule and here's how we're going to interpret it moving forward. Then they have to be consistent doing it, and they haven't always done that either. Cody Fajardo was also knocked out of that football game with a concussion. Fajardo did practice Tuesday, although he was limited. The Rough Riders, under his leadership, scored no touchdowns against Winnipeg, no points in the second half in either game against Winnipeg, and haven't scored a touchdown since they played Ottawa with 6.30 left in the third quarter of that game. You mentioned it before that they were able to move the ball. They just were not able to get it in. So I think maybe they need to take a look at what are they doing to uh, capitalize on the red zone chances. Right now, they certainly aren't capitalizing it. But we have to remember, this is Winnipeg. And by far and above, they have the best defense in the league at this point in time. So I'm interested to see what might happen this next week against Toronto. I think Toronto still has a good defense, but we will talk more about some of the changes there. Uh, but I, I, I think that will be a true tale for the Riders to see whether or not they're able to move the ball and, and score. I think Winnipeg is a tough opponent to judge that against. And not just touchdowns. I think I want to touch briefly on the kicking game in this game as well. On both teams, there was some issues. Brett Lothar made all three field goals in the first half and then missed his two attempts in the second half. Mark Leggio missed a field goal missed two point after attempts on touchdowns in the first half as well. So it was kind of ugly in the kicking department, I think, for both teams. Uh, Mike O'Shea, after the game, took some responsibility and said he's put Legio out in some tough situations on field goals in the last couple of games. And he needs to, to be better with them to get his confidence back up, which is fine. I mean, in the Labor Day game, he had him lined up for an over 50-yard field goal. In the Banjo Bowl, it was around 50 yards that he came up short on that one as well. So there are ways to protect him in those situations. But the point after is he's now missed three or four this season. And that has to get better because as much as Winnipeg is rolling right now, they're going to be in a close game eventually, and those points are going to make the difference. If this was Edmonton or if this was Ottawa, would we be giving them as much of a pass? not scoring touchdowns. I think we've given Ottawa lots of passes for not scoring touchdowns so far this season. <laughs> Very true. We move to the second of the three games on Saturday. The Calgary Stampeders go into Edmonton and play the Elks in front of a big crowd. Act. Almost 34,000 were there. And the Elks debut a new logo on their helmet, not necessarily new to the team, on the helmet. It looked really nice. It just was hard to see without any fill in it. It would have been nice to Stampeders win their big game against their uh, Alberta rivals with the rematch going by 16 points, and that's quite significant. Yeah, that was uh, a great job by Calgary to make sure they got the point differential there at the end. I mean, it seemed that they 
got tied up and Kamar Jordan was able to get that ball to the end zone. Uh, certainly very significant in terms of taking the Battle of Alberta. Having said that, uh, I mean, when I take a look at, at Calgary, it seemed like Bo Levi had somewhat of an average day, but he did just enough to get them by. I would credit this one to the defense of Calgary, who I thought really dominated against Edmonton's offensive line in particular. They did. Bo Levi Mitchell was good, not great. I mean, uh, but you're absolutely right, Pat, that defensive line, especially for Calgary, played probably their best game of the season and really gave that team a chance to win. Bo was 23 of 42, 276. One touchdown, one interception. His counterpart across the way, Trevor Harris for the Elks, 17 of 25, 221. No touchdowns and one interception. There was a bit of interest at the end of the game, 20 seconds to go. Calgary taking the ball over on downs and then immediately throwing the long pass to Kamar Jordan, who catches the ball at the Edmonton 13 and runs in for a touchdown to get the season series. The Stampeders, uh, Dave Dickinson, had mentioned earlier in the week that they were in tough because they had lost the first game, but by also the size of the deficit that they were facing from the first game. And if they won in Edmonton, not only would they have to win, but they'd have to win by enough points to win the season series. And scoring that touchdown put Calgary ahead in that season series. Now, Jamie Elizondo, after the game, said, we've got long memories and we won't forget this, but it's interesting to me that no one on his coaching staff knew what was going on and did anything to tell him that, you know, they may try to win the seasonal series right here. I think that was very smart for Dickinson and the Calgary Stampeders. If you look at the standings in the West Division right now, other than Winnipeg that's opened up a little bit of a gap, there's one win separating the other four teams. So any chance that you get where you can win a season series it very well could come down to head-to-heads, to points for, points against, all of those tiebreaker scenarios. Awareness is key, and kudos to Dickinson and, and the Stampeders for recognizing that and doing what they needed to do to win that series. Famously, Elizondo and the Elks, NBC, had stopped at about the three-yard line and not decided to go through, try to score another touchdown. They still have to play another game against BC, and if they lose that season series, if, if BC wins by enough points... Elizondo will be on two wrong sides of these situations. The last time I checked, games are 60 minutes long and no one says you have to quit after 58. We talked a lot about quarterbacks learning from their mistakes with Nick Arbuckle. This might be an opportunity for a rookie head coach to learn from his mistakes as well. Um, you know, they always say when, when you accuse a team of running up the score that they're out there, they're paid to do a job, and the defense is paid to stop them. You know, it's one thing if you're running trick plays to run up a score and that sort of thing, but if you're pounding the ball straight forward or throwing a, a post route to somebody, that defense has to do their job and stop it. There's a famous quote from Ron Lancaster, and I always love to think of it in these situations. If you don't like the result, ask yourself how you got there. Not an easy road for them. They certainly have to get things on track at home. Edmonton has not won a home game yet. They're 0-3. And they've got Winnipeg coming in to Commonwealth this week coming up. It's going to be tough. Trevor Harris, he's 35 now. He's getting to that point in his career where experience should getting him through these tough games. And yet we see him struggle. Don't know what it is. I don't understand. Was it the play calling that wasn't assisting? I'll play a little clip here from the Turf District. This is Andrew Hoskins talking about special teams in Edmonton. Because our, our return game was catch and fall down. Which is basically what we're used to at this point. <laughs> <laughs> and as Pat alluded to, it's not getting any easier for them. They've got 
three of the next four coming up against Winnipeg, and we've talked about that stretch at the end of the season, those three games in seven days as well. So it's uh, going to be a really telling next four weeks if they don't go at least two and one against the Bombers, which is not the easiest thing to do, then it's going to be really tough to get into a, a solid playoff position at this point. Earlier we were writing Calgary off, but after watching this game, I do believe that Calgary has the opportunity to move into the playoff scene and really push Edmonton. Darrell Walker and Greg Ellenson combined for seven receptions and 73 yards. Kamar Jordan, on the other hand, 12 receptions, 159 yards for the Stampeders. Bo Levy-Mitchell struggled in the first half. He had a little squabble with Dave Dickinson on the sideline, basically that the Stampeders were getting caught on time counts, and Dickinson was upset, why aren't you getting the playoff sooner? And, and Mitchell saying, get it into me sooner, and I can call it sooner. It seemed like after that little set two that everything settled down. I think that's a very telling sign of a trusting relationship between a quarterback and a head coach. If they can kind of snipe at each other in the middle of the game and vent their frustrations and sort it out, it, it bodes well. High tense situation where you've got to make decisions quickly. They aired their concerns and put it away and moved on and had great success in the second half. Final game of the uh, night from British Columbia. The uh, BC Lions with the Ottawa Red Blacks in town and 45-13 win for the BC Lions. Mike Riley, there was a lot of questions about whether or not he was going to start. That elbow is not feeling great for him. He went into the locker room just prior to kickoff. They did some work on it. Comes out, completes his first 11, throws 22 of 26 for 319, four touchdowns on a basically a very sore arm. There was a lot of talk uh, watching that game, and I don't disagree with it. At what point do you get Michael Riley out of that game and get Rourke in for some snaps? You know, you're up by 30 points in the fourth quarter. Ottawa has had a pretty anemic offense all season. They're not likely to score four touchdowns to beat you. Give Michael Riley some rest and let the other guy get some snaps. I could not understand why Rourke didn't start the fourth quarter. It made no sense to me. I don't know what Campbell was thinking. We've actually seen this happen in a number of occasions with quarterbacks when we're watching the game and there's a big point differential. For whatever reason, we see coaches being reticent to pull their starters out. And I, I think it is a great opportunity to develop the backup to give them some time for if there is an injury, they do have to step in. And we've seen that happen a lot this this year as well. So why not take the opportunity? And, and to me, that's an unforgivable mistake. You need to put the young guys in, give them a chance and, and see what they can do. And you just cringe. There's a couple of times where Riley got flushed out of the pocket and tackled and, and he took some pretty decent hits in the fourth quarter that I think your star quarterback shouldn't be taking in those situations. Especially, you look at Nathan Rourke, and he kind of got forced into action in week one and week two of the season with Michael Riley's injuries. We didn't really know what was happening. But here's a great opportunity. They could have had a, a quarterback huddle on the sideline going into that fourth quarter uh, with the coach as well and really set him up for some success. And instead, they had him on the sidelines and kind of trotting out there when it didn't matter anymore and there was no benefit to him being there. Dominic Davis for the Red Blacks, 30-51 for 333, one touchdown, one interception. you think that'd be a pretty good day at the office, but when you only put up 13 points, something's not working. Yeah, I still believe it's a step up from what they were getting from Matt Nichols. 
I think Dominic Davis is the guy for now. Uh, we'll see if there's any movement to maybe bring in some quarterbacking help somewhere along the way. But um, he definitely gives them more opportunity on offense. It's not polished up here yet, but give him a few more games and I think uh, he's set up for success. I think that's a really good question right now because at what point do you move on from Nichols? We've spoken about this before in the past and he's making a huge salary and, and certainly doesn't appear to be contributing like he used to be able to contribute. And so at what point does Ottawa start taking a look in, in a different direction and, and build for the future? I think by having Dominic Davis take the snaps in the game, it's a first step there. But I think if, if I'm Ottawa, I might be looking inside the organization saying, how can we cut things and potentially either bring someone up or make a trade at this point? I'd be phoning Calgary to see if Jake Mayer's available myself. Now, I'm saying go after Jake Mayer. Easier said than done. We don't know the exact health status of Bo Levi Mitchell at this point. Yes, he has come back to play uh, from his broken tibia, but we don't know if he's going to be able to stay healthy for the rest of the season. Jake Mayer has now proven himself to be quite capable and comfortable in there. So if I'm Calgary, it might take a pretty sweet deal to pry him away at this point in the season. Lucky Whitehead had a fantastic game against the Red Blacks. He had a missed field goal return for a touchdown. And he went three receptions for 82 yards otherwise. He was promised when he got to BC that he'd see the ball, and they haven't disappointed. And neither has he. He's been a great addition to that offense. He gives them another really speedy option to run some of those post patterns. Uh, They also get him inside on some short plays and hope that he gets the defenders to miss. And right now he's one of the most exciting receivers in the league. Anthony Coombs may finally coming off the injury list for Ottawa, and the Canadian goes eight receptions and 82 yards. Ryan Davis, who got just flipped lit up in that game, had five receptions for 65 yards. I think he's been a real breath of fresh air for the Red Blacks, and I think he's going to be a guy to watch. Yeah, he's certainly improved, I think, throughout the season and, and has shown up as, as Ottawa's primary receiver to this point. Uh, certainly was unexpected given the, where we thought he'd be at the beginning, but he is not disappointed. And I, I, I'm excited to see what the rest of the season brings for him and his connection with Dominic Davis. Second down. A pair of double headers this weekend in the Canadian Football League. It'll open on Friday night with the Calgary Stampeders playing the Hamilton Tiger Cats. Calgary plus 0.5. Over-under in this game, 40.5. Thoughts? I'm questioning the health of Jeremiah Mazzoli at this point. He has been deemed the starter, but there's no way he would have been had Dane Evans not gone down injured. So I am kind of shying away from Hamilton in this one. Brandon Banks is also injured. So 0.5 points seems a little generous. I would favor Calgary in this one myself. But Levi Mitchell came back and as we mentioned had a good not great outing in his first game back and I think he's gonna look a lot sharper this time around and I'm picking Calgary to win this one. I think the Hamilton receiving core has done a great job but I just question whether or not Mazzoli is going to be the one to be able to get it to them or if we will see David Watford in this game. I'm actually surprised at at 40.5. I might have gone a bit lower on this one in terms of the points but I, I would probably favor Calgary as well in this one. And the way that Calgary's defensive line played against the Elks last week 
again, with a question mark for mobility for Jeremiah Mazzoli, how does that play in with, with that Calgary defense putting pressure on them? Seven sacks against the Elks for the St. Peter's defense. The talk at the beginning of the season was how young this defense was. Well, they're starting to gel. Calgary on the road should be able to cover and win. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to watch the Stampeders for the rest of the season. As we mentioned, they dug themselves quite a hole with a 1-4 and four start. But if there's a team that can get back in it and roll some wins together, I think it's the Stampeders. Well, the thing that works well for the Stampeders, and we'll get into this more as the season goes, but look at their schedule coming up. They've got the teams they need to beat. They're all in a row. So the Calgary controls its own destiny. If they can start running up the table on, on the teams that are right there beside them, as they took care of business with the Elks, three against the Riders. Calgary's chances are very, very good to get out of the hole they're in, as you indicated. I think, as we mentioned, Edmonton's season kind of banks on how they do in those three games against the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. I think for Calgary, those three games coming up against the Saskatchewan Rough Riders are going to be really telling as far as whether or not they get back into this thing. Speaking of the Saskatchewan Rough Riders, they are the late game on Friday night. The Toronto Argonauts are in town. Toronto plus 3.5 over under a 43.5. We may see the return of Chris Jones to Regina. Just with the Argos situation on defense, defensive coordinator Glenn Young and defensive backs coach Josh Bell were both given indefinite leaves of absence on Monday. And then immediately, Chris Jones is hired away from his high school coaching job and brought in. Now, he has to go through the COVID protocol processing. He may or may not be able to get on the plane to go to Regina because that timeline may not fit well. Yeah, certainly Toronto's defense uh, appears to be having a few changes coming, and, and it's possible that Chris Jones shows up. Rich Stubler will be calling the defensive plays. You know, those two gentlemen certainly have different philosophies on defense. So it'll be interesting to see how they meld together as coaches and, and uh, how this moves forward in Toronto. So it does have some potential to, I think, reignite the Toronto defense, but it can also be uh, an interesting situation for the coaches to be put into. Dinwiddie is very confident that he's going to be able to navigate this. And uh, we've said all along, if Toronto could just seem to get things together, they could be a, a team to reckon with. And at this point, they are a team to reckon with in the East. These games against some of the Western teams will definitely show whether or not they're going to be a team to be reckoned with in the CFL. In terms of him working with Stubler, Stubler will be the defensive backs coach once Jones takes over. But I think they're more complimentary than, I th- than most people would ascribe. Stubler likes his defensive backs to read the play. He, he likes intelligence. He really likes you to be able to pick up on cues and understand the nuances of what the offensive attack is providing. And Jones is man coverage and a front four that can just dominate. He's always been big on the front four. So I don't think that the two are necessarily going to be combative. In fact, I think they're going to be quite complimentary. This one's a really tough one to call for me. Toronto managed to string up 17 points against the Hamilton Tiger Cats in their last game. And Saskatchewan has not found the end zone in the two games against the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. I'm not anticipating a lot of offense in this one. Uh, We don't know the full health status of Cody Fajardo at this point either. Uh, I am leaning towards the Rough Riders. I think they had a tough couple weeks against Winnipeg and this is their chance to bounce back. 
Toronto's not going to roll over. This is going to be a test. Um, I do think Saskatchewan wins the game, but I'm going to say that they do not cover the three and a half against Toronto. Uh, and if, if they're able to do that, Don, I think we could see some great things coming out of Toronto. We know that they've got the uh, strong caliber of athletes on their defense. And, uh, you know, when you take a look at their past, there's a number of all-stars here. So if they're able to strengthen the defense and continue to grow, I mean, they, they played very well against uh, Winnipeg when they did upset Winnipeg. But uh, if they're able to, to bring that forward on a consistent basis, that's when this team will be dangerous. What does this say to Ryan Dinwiddie as head coach that now all of a sudden you're bringing in Chris Jones? Dinwiddie's in his first season as head coach. Now you've got a Grey Cup winning coach coming in to help out your defense partway through the season. Is there concern for Dinwiddie at this point? Are they unhappy with the product on the field? No, I don't think that has anything to do with it. I think he's the best man for the job. Chris Jones is a phenomenal, despite what you think of him as a head coach, he is a phenomenal defensive coordinator. He's won great cups as a defensive coordinator. The Argonauts want to be there. And he's one of the guys that you could point to and say, yeah, he's one that could do that for us. I don't think there's any threat whatsoever. I agree, Don, that he's an outstanding defensive coach. I think the threat certainly may be impacted by the history we see in Jones of being in a place for only a short period of time. If he gets back to the CFL, is he going to be with Toronto for a long period of time or is he going to take a look at other head coach opportunities that may come forward? In this case, he is the best person you can bring into a defense in short notice and uh, he'll do well. But I think Dinwiddie certainly shouldn't be concerned about that in his situation at this point in time. He's trying to put together the best team and you do that by surrounding yourself with good people. I think Jones is going to be a great compliment to Dinwiddie. There's going to, you're going to see the defense change its philosophy, and they're going to become vastly more aggressive. Dinwiddie probably likes that as well. Dinwiddie now can focus more on the offense because he doesn't have to worry, well, what's going on on defense because Murphy isn't there anymore. Oh, by the way, who's going to win that game? You know what? I, I know Heath mentioned Saskatchewan not covering the point spread. I, being at home in Mosaic Stadium is definitely going to be a boost for them, and I do think that Saskatchewan should be able to. I'm going to take the over on that one. I think they can cover this. I'm going to lean with the uh, Argonauts in this one. I think Saskatchewan's offense is reeling right now, and I don't see a way out of it. Saturday, another doubleheader. This is just the most wonderful time of the year. The British Columbia Lions are in Montreal. Speaking of coaching, we have another situation in Montreal where Kahari Jones has been diagnosed with a positive test for COVID, which means he's now in 10-day isolation. Wow, that's tough on the Alouettes because not only is that the head coach, but I think that's their real emotional leader gone from the sideline. And we were talking just before the show, how does Vernon Adams Jr. react to this? So running backs coach Andre Bolduc will take over as interim head coach for the Alouettes. Big game, the Alouettes coming out of the bye at home against BC. BC is a one, minus 1. 1.5 with a 49.5 over under on this game both of these teams are coming off of big games in their last game against ottawa both offenses were firing on all cylinders during that game certainly the the quality of defense that they each have i think is going to be uh stronger than what ottawa has at this point in time but i do believe that they should be able to get over 49.5 points if both offenses continue to go on a roll like we saw previously in this case it's hard to pick someone but i do think losing that leader, as you identified, Don, is going to have an impact on Montreal. So I think BC has an opportunity to go and take this game. 
I'm interested to see what Montreal gets in place to keep Kahari Jones active in the game. There's talk about him coaching from his couch. What that looks like, we don't know yet. Um, it's certainly a lot better technology now than there was even 10, 15 years ago when, you, when you're in a situation like this. So I think Kahari Jones does keep his head in that game and, and call plays, or at least call scenarios and, and that sort of thing. And it might be up to the guy on the sideline at the end of the day to essentially make the final decision. Or is this an opportunity for Vernon Adams to shine in this role? And does he get to ad lib a little bit? And if that's the case, then I like Montreal's chances. I'm with you on that, Heath. I think that Vernon Adams Jr. will see this as a challenge. And I think that he'll take that challenge. And he's the type of guy that likes to rise to the occasion. I think Andre Bulduc will probably give him a lot more freedom. And the play calling will probably have to come from the sideline. I just don't know about, you only got the 20 to 25 seconds to get the play call in. It's going to be, I think it's going to be Bulduc's game to call. But he's he's probably going to be given a script from Jones. He certainly has been there long enough to know how Jones calls a game. BC's coming across the country to play in Montreal. Again, Riley's health is always up for grabs. We never know how bad that elbow is. I'm liking the BC defense, but I think Montreal's offense, who put up over 50 against Ottawa, is showing now that they're ready to go, and I think they will win this game. Final game of the weekend, and it's the one that I think everyone is really interested in. It's the Blue Bombers back on the road. They play in Edmonton. Bombers are minus 8.5 with an over-under of 38.5. That's not a lot of room to win by that big of a margin. That tells you the respect that Bet Regal have for the Winnipeg Blue Bombers right now. Minus 8.5 on the road. I think that speaks volumes to the respect they have for that Winnipeg Blue Bombers defense. As you said, 38.5 points and an 8.5 point spread says that the Bombers are going to keep Trevor Harris and that gang in check and do what they have to do to win. We saw some flashes of brilliance from Trevor Harris on Labor Day against Calgary threw for four touchdowns and looked really comfortable in there. Comes back the next week against Calgary again, puts 13 points on the board and does not look that good. So it's kind of a Jekyll and Hyde of which Trevor Harris we're going to see. And you're going to hope that it's the good one if you're coming against that Winnipeg defense. Have a tough time saying a team's going to cover eight and a half on the road. Winnipeg wins this game. I, I learned my lesson betting against them in week one of the season, picking Hamilton to win that game. So from this point out, I'm riding the Bombers until they tell me not to. I certainly think they've shown us enough to say that they're a class of the league. I think Edmonton has been very inconsistent throughout the course of the season. And I think Winnipeg should be able to go in and use that strong defense to dominate once again. And I mentioned it when we were talking about last week's games, but I do think their offense is doing very well in controlling the ball. So I think it, it may be tough for Edmonton to get hold of the ball. Winnipeg will be able to move the football up and down the field, and I think that they should be able to cover that spread. We talked last week, or at least I said, that if Brent Monson wanted to keep his job, he'd better have an answer for the Elks after what they did to the Stampeders on Labor Day. Well, he did. Now you're looking at Jamie Elizondo, and you know that he knows what Saskatchewan did against Winnipeg. And you don't think that there are going to be a lot of eyeballs looking at him saying, are you going to be able to do any better? 
And I think it's going to be really incumbent upon the Elks to get something going because they cannot lose a fourth game on home turf. I think one thing that may give Edmonton a chance in this game is it's going to come down to special teams. Winnipeg has not looked great on kick coverage this year. They've given up some, they haven't given up a touchdown return, but they've given up some big returns. And the Elks have Williams running the ball back on kicks. He could be dangerous and break one. We've seen Mark Leggio struggle. Sean White is a much more consistent kicker. So if the Elks can keep it close, special teams might be the difference. And that's really the only chance I'm giving them at this point. Isn't that a big if? (laughs) It sure is. I don't think there's a lot of confidence in Edmonton that anything's going to change. I would almost put money that Winnipeg special teams is superior. Winnipeg at minus 8.5. And again, that's a huge <laughs> give on a road game. I don't see how Edmonton's going to challenge that. What we saw against Montreal, what we saw against even Ottawa just last week against Calgary, that offense, and especially in Commonwealth, just doesn't know how to get on track. It will be... Definitely a game worth watching to see what happens. I think this is the chance for Edmonton to either step up or they could fall towards the basement in the in the CFL West. Updating our podcast pool tracker for the week, we had three players go a perfect four for four in games this past week. Dini 13, our own Don Charbin, and our own Heath Graham went a perfect four for four. It closed the gap a little bit at the top of the standings. CFL America continues to lead, but it has shrunk to one point over Dini 13 and three points over our own Snack Bites Pete slash Heath Graham. So things are tightening up at the top. There was a lot of really good picks this last week. And uh, it looks like from our prognostication, the week coming up is a little bit tougher to go four for four. Our thanks to Andrew Hoskins. And I highly advise everyone to listen to the Turf District podcast. It's a lot of fun, and they're a great group together. Third down. It's fantasy time. And even though I had my best week this year, I still finished sixth in our little uh, pool that all three of us are entered into, which, wah, wah. Oh, well. Let's see if I can do any better. Although, to be quite honest, this is going to be a brutally tough week to figure out how to do fantasy, I swear. Pat, let's go quarterback and running back. Let's see what you've got. I found quarterback incredibly hard this week to to pick someone. I went back and forth between Vernon Adams Jr. and Mike Riley, and at the end of the day, I settled on Mike Riley for $9,400 because he's playing a defense that is ranked 7th at this point. So it gives him an opportunity, hopefully, to put up some points. I'm thinking Montreal could be impacted. As a running back, I'm switching gears here, thinking that um, James Wilder Jr. is going to have to be a go-to guy. He's going to get a lot of passes, I think, this week as well. So I'm taking Wilder Jr. for 8,900. Heath? Bo Levi Mitchell from the Calgary Stampeders against Hamilton for $9,700. Running backs have been probably the toughest thing to pick this year. And week to week, you don't know who's going to have a good one, who's going to have a bad one. I'm sticking with the Stampeders and going with Kadeem Carey, complimenting him with Bo Levi Mitchell. I'm going with Bo Levi Mitchell as well. Opponent rank is going to be six this week. Once he gets on a roll, watch out. My running back, I thought of a lot of people, but I'm I'm going to agree with you. Kadeem Carey, probably the best bet. That's a nice combination with the Stampeders in uh, Hamilton. Wide receivers, please. 
Pat. Hoping that one of these weeks I can pick the guy who gets those 30-some points because that seems to be winning our pool. Um, so I, I, I've gone away from him for a couple weeks. It's time for me to go back to Eugene Lewis, $7,900 in Montreal. And I'm also picking uh, Wynicki and uh, hoping that he will also be complimentary there at $6,500. Well, Pat, head-to-head this week, I'm going a different direction with the Montreal Alouettes and taking BJ Cunningham. I think he's overdue. Wynicki and Lewis have both had good games very recently. Cunningham had a good one earlier in the season, has been a little bit quieter. I think he gets back into it. $5,800 for BJ Cunningham. And from the Toronto Argonauts, I'm taking Ricky Collins Jr., 7,300 against the Saskatchewan Rough Riders. Now, Collins Jr. was limited at practice because of a knee injury, so just be careful. I'll have that edit button ready. Josh Huff, who is with the Stampeders, $5,900 in Hamilton. Going to go with him. And Eric Rogers, who used to be a Stampeder. He's now with the Toronto Argonauts playing in Saskatchewan. Saskatchewan's past defense is ranked 8th. So I think, um, why not take Rogers? Flex, we got two of those guys to pick up. I'm taking a look this week at uh, going back to another running back in John White, uh, the fourth, uh, $8,100. I think that he should have a big game. And then I'm sticking with the, the combination, and I'm going to take Foster as well. I think that he's a value pick at 4100 So picking up two Toronto players here. Heath. I have also grabbed onto Eric Rogers as my flex, not as a wide receiver like Don had. $9,000 for Rogers. He's a bit more expensive. The other player I am taking, the TSN panel was very complimentary of, and he had a pretty good game against the Saskatchewan Rough Riders. For $6,200, I'm taking Nick Dembski from the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. Uh, my flex will be Kamar Jordan with the Calgary Stampeders. He went off against Edmonton. Hoping he has that streak continue against the Thai Cats, And I'm taking Eugene Lewis with the Alouettes. He seems to be Adam's go-to guy. 7,900. Defense, Pat. Uh, how can you not go with the Blue Bombers? I, I think they should be able to do a good job this week for $5,100. I felt it was a good buy. Heath? Seven sacks last week. I believe they're going to continue strong. And I am taking the Calgary Stampeders against Hamilton at 4500 I'm with you, Heath, with the uh, question marks at Hamilton quarterback. Even if Mazzoli is playing, how healthy is he going to be when he plays? Final thoughts. There's a couple of real tests out there. Vernon Adams Jr. without Kahari Jones, how does he fare? The Edmonton Elks, as Pat alluded to, playing against that Winnipeg defense. That one is a really, really telling game for the Elks. If it doesn't go their way, it could be the start of a terrible slide. I'm enjoying the opportunity to watch double headers. Uh, I think this should be a great week of football once again, and uh, we get to see who's going to take the next step in many of these games. Thank you for listening to our show. Third Down Gamble is hosted on Podbean. Follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at Third Down Gamble. Join us again next time. The Third Down Gamble Podcast audio worth watching.